Welcome to Storytelling with Lindsay Bednar. Hi, Jenny and Andy. Hi. Thank you guys both so much for uh, coming on today and sharing your story, which is incredible. Uh, Not just the beginnings of it, but where you guys are today and what you are up to. So I would love for you to take our listeners to where this part of your journey really started. And, and then we're going to work back from there, but um, take us back to uh, the beginning as you see it. Yeah. So in 2005, we got pregnant with our first baby. It was a surprise. And I mean, obviously my first pregnancy and um i mean we're super excited oh <laughs> we're super excited to you know have our baby and um they told us we we're having a little girl we were so excited we were celebrating with my family for christmas we weren't due until april and i went into labor at our family christmas so my sister-in-law's a lpn she told me i think you need to go to the hospital Um, so we drove into town. My mom lives out in the woods. So we drove into town and we ended up at St. Mary's in Duluth and I was admitted and things just kept getting worse. So they ended up delivering our son Colton at 24 weeks. He weighed one pound, eight ounces and obviously a boy, not a girl. And he was admitted to the NICU right away. Um, when I woke up, I mean, they had cut me vertically I was in a horrific amount of pain and really didn't even know what had happened because I'd completely been put out for my delivery. Um, I finally did get to see Andy and I did get to meet our baby. And I mean, it was just surreal that he was so small. So I don't know if you want to talk about your. Uh, So, yeah. Um, Jenny went into labor because she had uh, the uter- uterus had ripped away from, or the placenta had ripped away from the uterine wall, which sent her into labor. And when she was being carted out of the room, um, I didn't know if I was losing a baby, a wife, or both. And uh, so when I got to see him, it was what I thought a miracle at the time. And, um, He spent 12 days in the hospital, and basically everything that could go wrong did go wrong. Um, Brain bleeds, perforated bowel, lungs, heart, all the different things that go along with uh, having a preemie. It wasn't until basically the last day that we got to hold him without any of the different wires where we finally felt like we got to hold our baby and be with him in a way that was like, being a parent. Yeah. So our first family photo was with our son passing away. So after we, after that had happened, um, Andy and I talked and I just told him like, I wouldn't have another baby in Duluth. So we decided that we were going to move down to the cities. And I asked our doctor at St. Mary's, which I didn't really know that well, that I wanted a referral to the best doctor in the Twin Cities, which was the Minnesota Perinatal Physicians. So they're like, well, you just had a preemie. They didn't really know what the cause was. We don't really even know if you're high risk. 
And I'm like, well, I want to see the best doctors because I, I don't want this to happen again. So on Colton, what would have been Colton's mm-hmm. first birthday, um, Andy and I went out to dinner and we decided that we were going to try to have another baby. And I got pregnant that month with our son, Ryland. So I carried Ryland for 28 weeks and um, in seeing these specialists, um, they basically did everything they could to plan to have a healthy preemie. So I received a lung steroid shot. I had my cervix sewed shot. I was put on bed rest. I was on tons of different medications to calm muscle movement and just delay contractions. Um, Basically, I was in labor with Ryland probably for about eight weeks on and off. Um, I lived at the hospital until finally one day when he was 28 weeks on the button. The doctor came in that morning and she goes, can't have breakfast because you're going to have your baby today. So Andy was like, oh, my God, this is really happening. So he got to come in and it was just kind of a normal style C-section, which already felt like a thousand times better than our first pregnancy and delivery. And when Ryland was born, he came out crying, which is just totally incredible for a 28 week baby to come out crying and breathing on his own. Um, They had just put like a a nose cannula on him and Andy and him went down to the NICU while I finished up in my surgery. Um, It was just a really incredible experience for to have a preemie and to still feel like you were having a full term baby because that had really been taken away from us for our first pregnancy. So when I finally got to go down and see Ryland, I just, I felt like when I had seen him, first of all, he was two pounds, 12 ounces, which was double the size of our first baby. And he just looked like a perfect, healthy, but super tiny baby. Like he didn't look like sick or his skin didn't look see-through like a lot of people talk about. Like I thought he just looked so wonderful. Um, And we ended up visiting him every single day. He was in the hospital for 62 days, and I feel like every day we were in there, it was just positive and awesome. We got to have our own room in the NICU. Um, The feelings that we had from the two different experiences, 62 days, yeah. He got out a month before his due date, though. 62 days. Yeah. Wow. So just to add... You were... uh, Sorry. Yeah, so he... When he when Jenny was in the the hospital for those eight weeks, um, they gave her a surfactant shot that helped develop the lungs of Ryland so that when he came out he was breathing on his own, and that was research that was done through the March of Dimes, so that you know when things were all done we felt we needed to give back to that that um, charity because of that, so that's kind of how. You know, once everything came to the point where we wanted to give back, that's where we started. Wow. Okay. So with your experience um, with Colton in Duluth, was there any sort of, um, obviously at that point, it couldn't really be called intervention because it sounded like with Ryland, they were doing things along the way, but um, was there any sort of communication with the March of Dimes or is that too late in the process? Um, What is that? How did that differ and what does that look like? I think by the time Colton was born, there were so many issues that that wasn't really anything that could have been 
prevented. Um, you know, he was born really fast and he had issues. And I feel like that hospital up there was not equipped to have a NICU baby of that age. They're just not that level of a NICU. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I just felt like if, mm -hmm. if I was going to have another baby and it was going to be a preemie, like I want to be at the best hospital there is. And Children's Minnesota at mm -hmm. that time was the best hospital to have a preemie at. Um, and they're linked up with Alina Health. So that's just where I ended up because I wanted to have the best chance to have a baby. Yeah. So talk a bit about March of Dimes and what that organization um, allowed for you in your journey with Ryland and, and what you have seen they have done for, for other families and what, what kind of their mission is. Yeah. So two things that we ended up um, using with March of Dimes for our pregnancy with Ryland is we received a lung surfactant shot, which is basically a lung steroid to speed up lung development. And we also were asked to be in a experimental um, trial program, which was a progesterone shot, which at the time I did not know that March of Dimes was funding that, but I ended up being part of their research study. And that is now a shot that's used for moms that go into preterm labor or high risk moms. So it was kind of cool to be a part of that, even though I didn't know. Wow end person who was researching that, um, I just opted in because I wanted to have the best chance to have a healthy baby. And then we found out actually years later that that was a March of Dimes driven thing. So I think one thing that we ended up doing is that we just kind of felt like a societal debt um, because I had such great insurance and basically mm -hmm. like everything was paid for. And um, I mean, we could have been in terrible financial debt with the medical bills that Ryland and I incurred. Um, in the hospital, I lived at the hospital. I mean, my bills alone were 150 grand. Ryland was over $350,000. And our insurance was so amazing that we just felt like a societal debt to fundraise and pay that forward or pay that back in some way. And, and not just that, um, with Colton, we did have a big bill from St. Mary's. And after about, I don't know how long it was, a year, I think it was like six months. They just sent us a letter and said we didn't have a bill anymore. I mean, what was our bill? Was it over a hundred thousand dollars? One hundred and five thousand dollars. Yeah. So those two things combined, we felt compelled to give back in some way. Obviously, we don't want to have any other families go through what we went through, both with Colton and with Ryland, if we can. But if it's going to be a situation, we want it to be the best case scenario, like Ryland. Right. Well, so your your bills were taken care of by the March of Dimes. Is that accurate? No, I, I believe the hospital just ended up writing them off. We never really found out how they were paid. They wow. don't. They didn't say that. Yeah. Wow. <clears throat> so um, I love that what you did was you took what you felt as you were indebted and you've done something positive uh, with it. And I want to get to your benefit. But one of the things that I, I wanted to talk to you guys about too, is it seems that, you know, trauma in a family can either uh, tear, especially a husband and wife partnership apart, or it can bring them closer. So, uh, I know you guys, I know you have a, a strong marriage. What was that like in 
uh, going through that together and how did you come out of it even stronger? Yeah, I mean, I think after we lost our first baby, like we were bound and determined to, I mean, make everything work and continue to grow our family. And I think also when you go through something so unique of a trauma, there's not a lot of people who can really, I don't know, know how you feel about it. We were really the only ones who knew how that felt. I mean, I felt like... Mm -hmm. I, we didn't know any friends who had really mm -hmm. lost babies or who had had preemies. Like I literally knew no one who had had a preemie before I had had Colton. And uh, the grief counselor at St. Mary's didn't, I mean, it was good to talk to her, but there wasn't a group or anybody else to really talk to. There were other families that had babies in the NICU at St. Mary's, but we didn't know them. There wasn't a sense of community. Um, which is part of what we try to do with what we're doing. Yeah. And the grief counselor also, you know, they recommend you maybe talking to someone who lost a child. Well, that child could be like any age. And I think different ages of losing a child are different stages of grief. I mean, losing a teenager versus losing a one-year-old has got to be incredibly different. You know, even though you're still grieving right. your child. So, I mean, even losing a baby that's born versus a miscarriage is a different form of grief. So I think we just felt like we were just in this Absolutely. two people group, you know, that we didn't know anybody. And I think once we moved out to the cities, like we started to meet more people and hear more stories. And obviously when we were in the NICU, I mean, we met a few families here and there, but nothing super, you know, connective or anything like that. But just since we've been fundraising now, and now Ryland's 16, um, we've heard so many stories and met so many families. And I feel like we've helped a lot of families and we've helped a lot of pregnant moms advocate for themselves. Because people reach out to us. They're like, my friend's having problems with their pregnancy. And they'll reach out to us. Like, we are like, you know, doctors for this, you know. But um, we just like to help in any way that we can. If if we feel like we are a part of saving one baby's life, I mean, that's incredible. Yeah, I think what we were told early on with the struggles with Colton was, um, you know, a lot of couples that go through loss like that, it's okay if you split up. It's okay if you divorce. And that, I don't know about mm -hmm. you, but that, that pissed me off. That wanted that made me want to work harder mm -hmm. on it. Because I was like, well, why would yeah. we separate during the hardest time of our life? And so we mm -hmm. just figured out a way through. And part of that was like, we didn't know how we were going to do it. Even a year later, once we found out we, we were pregnant with Ryland, we didn't know that we were going to be fundraisers. That was never a thing on the radar that that's, you know, we weren't super philanthropic people or anything. Um, but going through that process and using that energy as our engine to um, fundraise going forward and, and um, keep us together mm -hmm. was really where it was at. Yeah, it's like our yeah. hobby. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah I, yeah, I mean, it's like you guys are on your own island, as you said, because you're you're experiencing something that uh, was so unique to anybody you knew. And so, yeah, to me, when you're bonded by somebody in that way, it only makes sense to lean together. So 
Um, I understand that people are giving you those messages maybe to alleviate some sort of, you know, if, if people have um, a, a lot of stress they're going through and feel like they can't, they can't stay together. But um, I I love that it pissed you off and made you want to work all the, all the harder on it. You, you clearly have. Okay. So I want to talk about um, your, your nonprofit that you've started and, and what, um, first of all, what is it called? So our benefits called Brown Boys Benefit. So after our last name, Brown, um, and just our boys, obviously, we want to remember our son Colton and just carry on the our, our legacy of him and then also honor our son Ryland with that, you know, our, our logo is our first son's actual footprints. And I just think it's like mm. sweet to carry on that legacy. And I had said at one of our events one year, you know, he may have never taken his first steps, but his footprints will be everywhere forever with the, you know, with the legacy we are creating for him. That's beautiful. Uh, you guys have done a number of events with a Brown Boys Benefit. So from the beginning, what kind of vision did you have that this was going to be? Because undoubtedly it's grown beyond, I imagine, what you first thought. So mm -hmm. what yeah. was, the, when you set out, what was, what was the first plan that, that you had um, and how did you go about executing that? Well, initially when we started fundraising, when Ryland was a baby, we were just asking friends to donate money um, just to come walk with us and, you know, just to learn about like preemies and how we can prevent this or how we can work harder or just raise money for research and things like that. And Andy through and I, the, through the March this was through the March of Dimes initially. And, um, so okay. Andy and I are super competitive. So we wanted to be like the number one walkers and then we were the number one family. And then we were the number one family in the state. And then we were the number one family in the United States for two years in a row. So I think the competition and the oh. drive of like the things that we're able to accomplish and we just, we yearn to like do more. So we ended up forming Brown Boys Benefit when I just feel like we kind of outgrew March of Dimes as an individual fundraiser. Um, we also get to choose where that money goes. So a big thing that was, you know, I had heard about was this NICU family support program that children's really wanted at their hospital. Well, a donor has to choose them for that program to be at their hospital because it needs to be funded. So because Ryland was born there, mm. we contacted children's. And we like basically are like, we chose you to be you know, recipient of this program and we would like to fund it for two years. So we signed a promissory because at that time we weren't fundraising enough to pay that for two years all at once, but we were, had enough to pay half of it and then half the next year. So we ended up funding that right before COVID. So it ended up being a little tough for them to fill that position because you know, they weren't letting people in the hospitals. And I mean, everybody knows all the, the restrictions that happened during COVID. So it ended up kind of right. being a blessing, um, I believe, for that position, because it ended up being funded for a lot longer because nobody was in the position. And it worked out really great for us to be able to fund it for longer. And then we ended up funding also their Minneapolis location, they also have a satellite uh, location at Coon Rapids. And now we're also funding the Children's Masonic 
in Minneapolis, their NICU family support program as well. So let's just, can I just back up for a second? Because she kind of glossed over yeah. a bunch of stuff and a lot of the hard work that we've done up to this point. Because mm-hmm. when we first started raising money and it was just five, the first year we raised, I don't know, $500 and it was asking people for like 20 bucks. And really there was no vision to go beyond that. And uh, so the first year we did 500, the next year was a thousand. Next year after that was two. And then we started seeing our name on the ticker at March of Dimes, like, okay, we're starting. Okay. So let's see if we can go to the top. And so that year we decided where we're going to do a silent auction at my office and we raised like $5,000 that year. And then the next year we brought it to a bowling alley in Blaine. And I don't remember exactly how much we did, but we kept on going up in numbers. Um, 2015, Jenny ended up getting laid off. I lost a couple of employees at my job. We were net negative quite a bit of money. And so we just said, you know, we don't have a lot of resources and stuff to continue it on in 2015. So we took a year off. And that was the year where people were like, hey, what are you guys doing? Like, how come you're not doing this thing anymore? That's when we realized we had a great following, kind of a grassroots thing, if you will. And so then we decided, I'm kind of sick of doing the silent auction. Let's do something different. And so we did a gala and um, we do it at TPC, as you know. And the first year we did it there, we raised 29,000 that year. And then the next year was 58,000. Then the year after that was 103,000. And it's continued to climb with the exception of COVID year, which happened to be the second year of the promissory that we did with March of Dimes for the NICU Family Support Program. That was interesting because that year um, we didn't do just a gala. We supplemented it with the gala because we the numbers are so low on attendance with a golf tournament. And so we owed them from the promissory another 125000 We were able to give them that and more through doing both of the events. So that's kind of how we got to the gala piece. And that was... Um, was it 2020 was that last piece there? Yeah. So we were still able to have our gala during COVID just at 50% capacity. <clears throat> yeah. The thing, okay. the thing and about, that was the- yeah, I'm sorry. The thing about the COVID year that was frustrating to us is that we were still largely involved with March of Dimes. In fact, we were on, we were the only family on the board for March of Dimes, Minnesota. And the frustrating thing about a lot of, um, charities at that point was even though COVID was going on, all these charities and what they were supporting was still happening. Like um, babies are still being born premature. Mm-hmm. Mother's health was still an issue, um, but all these things got shut down and we didn't want to shut down our, our piece of it. So we tried to find a way through because we still want to be able to raise money and still wanted to help those families. And that's when we realized like maybe our best interests aren't aligned with March of Dimes. And that's kind of where we separated ways at that point. And that was in 2020, you said? Yeah. Or yep. in... Okay. Okay, so first of all, the uh, the jumps that you had in fundraising is amazing. And I, I mean, it's probably it's set in by this point for you guys, but... Um, uh, that's incredible. So I just want to like pause to appreciate that you went from, you know, asking $20 until what did you say the, the last amount was uh, that you last, were able to donate? Well, 2020. 
well, before 2020 was we 125, but the year prior to that was like 137. Yeah. And last year we donated over. Wow. Over, yeah, the last two years has been over 200,000. 200,000 each year. Yeah. Unbelievable. Okay. So when you parted ways with March of Dimes, um, what was that process like? And did you, did you have any, I know you said initially, like you, you weren't necessarily a philanthropist and that, that wasn't, uh, something you had intended until you experienced what it was like to get that help and you wanted to pay it forward. So, mm-hmm. How does somebody even start something like that? And and what kind of digging did you have to do? Who Did you lean on people who had um, started their own organizations? Yeah. So uh, what point was it? Oh, when we started the gala. So originally when we were raising money and doubling it through the March of Dimes, we used like their tax ID to create forms, to go ask businesses and in different ways. And we knew that using the tax ID was going to help us legitimize what we were doing. But we knew that being a third party fundraiser uh, for March of Dimes, it was limited. Um, and so in 2000, what was the first gala? 2016, we did the the gala and I ran everything through my business account, which is, as any person would know, it's uh, not a great idea of how to do things when you're running a nonprofit. And so the very next year, we started the Brown Boys Benefit Bank account with a tax ID. And it wasn't until a couple of years later that we actually got the 501c3 uh, designation. But that was something that we did through Pitzel and Pitzel. And they actually did that pro bono for us. And we met with them for hours getting that done. Um, obviously, he, he actually has a nonprofit side that he does with his business, too. But he led me to a couple of different nonprofits that helped me um, and kind of realized what it is you need to be doing to get to that level of a 501c3 and how you would structure it and everything. Yes. So we ended up meeting with a lawyer too, just to file all that paperwork and just make sure everything was legit. And I know some people will fill it out on their own, but it's like, we don't know what we're supposed to be filling out. So I think just asking a lot. Yeah. Asking a lot. Like, I mean, John Pitzel was amazing in that just because he had known all the steps that you had to do and he had a lot of connections that, you know, we could reach out to. So, and they still do like our tax returns for Brown Boys Benefit pro bono. So, which is awesome. Amazing. Yeah. Good people. I think I've, you know, especially at this stage in life, there are people who are really leaning into um ways to make an impact and you know your 20s you're just trying to figure it out you get a job you're just trying to make some money and in your 30s you're kind of getting settled with family and the focus but we get into this stage in our life and everybody seems to be looking ways to really make an impact and and to give back and so before we get to uh, direct ways that um with the brown benefit um what were some of the surprising things when you were uh, creating this um, and in the Brown Benefit, what were some of the things that, uh, I don't know, that that if somebody's looking into getting into philanthropic events that you um, maybe didn't know about or was like a, a I, th- I think some people would be hesitant to jump into something 
Um, like, how can I do this in addition to my full-time job and whatever? So can you speak to like what the time commitment is and, um, and, and the help associated with that and people who've come out to support? Yeah. So I know Andy says a lot that it's just all about connections and it's all about telling our story. So I, I mean, I feel like Andy's better at that I am, but he is like always telling our story to people. Um, and you just naturally meet people and people want to get involved. Um, we've just met people at other fundraising events that want to be involved in our fundraising events. And we have a few people on our committee and a few people that have, you know, changed over, over time, but most of the core people who have helped us have helped us almost every year. So, but other than that, it's like just Mm. Andy and I doing most of it. (laughs) Well, the the time commitment is basically any time that I have in spare time and it it might be 10 o'clock at night, things are happening or, five in the morning, just depending on what kind of people they are. But um, like Jenny said, early on, just with like the March of Dimes years, it was always tell your story. Never be afraid to say what you went through because you never know the connections that you're going to make. And you never know how far reaching the words and the things that you do for people will be and how far reaching that will go. I just know that like some of the people that you end up telling the story to have a story they need to tell and they may not say it, but they end up doing something that's really profound for the nonprofit, for you or for somebody else. The one in eight babies are born premature in Minnesota, which is more than the national average. So we kind of get a failing grade there. Um, and that was one of our frustrations with March of Dimes is they, they talked about, Premies, 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 but nothing, the line never moved. And when I would come up with ideas of, well, maybe this would be a good thing we could do to move the line to help with moms and babies, nothing changed. So when we when we departed from the March of Dimes, that's when we were trying to figure out, like, how do we make a bigger impact? And when talking to people, then you start to get the, the understanding, like the last ambassador family we have at, like, we have an ambassador family at every one of our um, gal is now um, understanding what their struggles were and trying to readjust how the NICU family support program looks like to help out with those things and getting that immediate feedback. But it all comes from just talking and making those relationships. And there's nobody out there that I won't talk to. The, I will take an hour with anybody to sit down and hear their story and um, see what kind of things we can help each other out with. Yeah. And with our events too, we're always telling people to invite people or just tell them about it, or maybe they can just participate online just to see, you know, we want to have levels that everyone can participate at. So yeah, one there, there are some nonprofits that go from, and that's one of the things about our nonprofit too, is like, we don't pay ourselves. Um, the other nonprofit that we work with on the concert series that we can talk about later, they don't pay themselves. We're, we're business owners. And then we have a nonprofit the nonprofit is purely to benefit the people that we're raising money for. It has nothing to do with our our bank account. Mm-hmm. And the idea there is to get everybody to participate at some level that like Jenny was talking about. But yeah. Yeah. We try to just keep it open for everybody so people can come in and still donate twenty dollars, but we also are getting sponsors at over twenty grand. So I mean there's just an incredible wow. amount of, you know, 
areas in the middle that people can participate at, whether it's a personal, you know, donation or a business donation. I think the other thing, and you you mentioned the question, like, what are some of the surprising things? And I think that the surprising thing is that it grew as much as it did. Um, but also, after about three and a half years, I think most people get donor fatigue. So we try to keep it interesting to keep people coming back and being a part of it. You don't want to hear us dawdle on about our story if you've heard it 16 times. Um, but recreating that experience so that when you come back, it's impactful. You're finding out that we're doing more things for more people in more profound ways. But one of the really interesting things is like after about, was it three years of doing our non our gala, we started getting people reaching out to us. And I think that just came with consistency over time of never giving up on that passion that we have. And it, the engine's still there. I mean, it like it's a grind. It's professional begging to a degree. Um, and there's a lot of people that you connect with that are friends and you're asking them year after year. And it's hard because some people blur those lines where they think like by saying no to me, I'm going to be mad. And I get here, I get no's a lot when I ask for donations. So it's not a big deal. But um, I think the biggest surprises are some of those people that I have, really don't have a big relationship with that want to help in these really big ways. And that I just, again, it comes from that consistency over that time. Yeah, that's incredible. And you, for you to allow uh, people to donate at whatever means that they can um, is fantastic. And I feel like that is different in some of the other uh, nonprofits that I have been a part of where the baseline is like pretty high. Um, mm -hmm. But giving that flexibility for people, I think, um, is incredible. And I was also wondering what types of um, like, how do you select the the families or um, maybe it's not you selecting the families, but you know, you had said March of Dimes primarily deals with uh, preemies. And so you said you wanted to kind of zoom out and, and see there's, there's all so many different types of families and situations that are affected. So what are those parameters that you have in place? And is that kind of a moving scale as you evolve? Or what does that look like? Yeah, so a lot of the families that end up coming to us are usually like a referral from a friend or a business owner that's maybe come to our event before. Um, I just feel like every year we've kind of just naturally found a family. Um, we usually reach out to them or have, you know, our friends reach out to them and ask them if they're even interested because we don't want to, you know, if somebody has like a really small baby, sometimes they don't really feel comfortable telling that story yet. So we kind of approach them, I feel like pretty gently to see if they're even interested in telling their story. And we lead them to kind of like our webpage so they can kind of check us out and they can see everything that's going on before they even meet us. Um, but I feel like every time we meet somebody in person, um, we really make a connection with a lot of these families and they're like, we really want to come to your event and they want to speak and they want to share their story. And I feel like a lot of those families, they've benefited in a lot of ways after that as well. Some of them are starting their own little nonprofits, um, not, you know, as big as ours has gotten, but they want to do like gift boxes back to families that are in the NICU and different things like that. So 
I just feel like once we've met with some of these families, we're kind of like inspiring them to help move them forward as well. And especially if they're fresh out of the NICU, they just know some of those more current needs, you know, like our son's 16, obviously like technology wasn't even where it's at now. So there's just so many new Mm -hmm. things and amazing things that are available for these moms and just things that they can track and do on their phone and they can watch their baby on their phone all day long, even if they're at work, like in the NICU. I'm like, that's amazing. You know, so there's just so many different things going on. And if those are some programs that we can help fund, like these cameras for the cribs or, you know, different things for babies while they're in the NICU, we're trying to do that. We're trying to help families once they get home. Um, We've helped a few families get some of their like registry items if they need some special needs things for their babies. So, well, and to that point, so we, we help in three different major ways. The number one way is NICU family support. That's where the majority of our money gets donated to the hospital for those positions. The second way is hospital grants. And the third way, and it's a way that we end up finding some of these families, is they these families get nominated to us for a family grant. And those family grants are basically this. You're in the NICU and you have a need. There's no red tape. We write the check. And that check's a standardized check. But if the, the needs are higher, we will go beyond that. And a lot of times it's those families, or at least the last three families that we've had speak at the concert and our gala have received a family grant from Brown Boys Benefit. And so that's kind of that's some of the ways that we've been finding these families as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm sure there's not a shortage of need. And so for you to uh, navigate that, has that been difficult? Do you feel overwhelmed with the amount of things that come your way? Or um, what kind of like selection process do you have? Yeah, so for the hospital grants, the hospitals will put together kind of like a little blurb about the program and like what the programs might end up costing. So we're funding some breastfeeding programs right now, some NICU mom and dad mental health research Um, We just purchased 20 Mamaroos for Children's Hospital. So those are some of the hospital grants that we've been doing. And then for the families, usually a family gets nominated. Um, We do contact a social worker at the hospital that this family might have been at or is at. And the only thing they'll just confirm is like if the family is there or not, because we already have had a family contact us that did not have a baby at all. So... Um, we just try to confirm things as best as we can. And we have a few social worker contacts. So at least we can at least, you know, confirm, you know, that it's a legit story. Yeah, because we don't have a lot of we don't have an application process to vet some of these these families. And honestly, I don't I wanted to get that level because I wanted to be real time help. There was one family where a social worker reached out and she was going to get kicked out of her apartment. And Jenny met her with a check in hand for rent at her apartment that was late. And uh, so she wouldn't get kicked out. I mean, that's kind of, that's the kind of thing. If you have an application process, that's great, but it just takes time to go through and vet those things. And for us, we can make that decision right right away to help all families in a quick manner. But also opens us up to other families that Jenny was alluding to that they can come and say, Hey, I I heard about you guys through so-and-so I have, this need or whatever. And so we have to, it's good that we have relationships the way we do with the social workers and the NICU family support people that we know. 
uh, so that they can help us like identify whether or not they were actually at the hospital. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I love that. Um, it is more organic and flexible in the way that you um, bring in your, we select families that you can give back to, because I think, like you said, um, there can be a, too much red tape that can prevent uh, things from moving easily. And um, typically you just know uh, it's unfortunate that you had somebody reach out that was complete BS apparently yeah. one time. Yeah. Just the yeah, one so, time, but I'm sure that more of that will yeah. happen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, Hopefully not. I'm assuming that was like you were able to shut that down pretty quick for your sake. Mm -hmm. yep. Yeah, we did. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Another thing that we kind of reach out to these social workers and they'll reach out to us is, you know, some of these moms come in and they're like you and me. They, you know, they have jobs. They're doing really great. But all of a sudden they have a preemie. When I had Ryland, I lost my job. And at that time I was the breadwinner of our family. So all of a sudden we are in like financial peril for, you know, a couple months and we did get a few like little things here and there. Like we had a grant pay for like a car payment and some things like that. But, um, if there's a family that needs help for one month, there's no like financial social work program that they're going to qualify for. So I think mm -hmm. a big thing with us is like, we can write that grant and help them through that month, whether it's like they're way over in gas or they can't afford eating out every day because they're downtown at the NICU or, you know, maybe they're late on one mm -hmm. of their payments because okay. mom lost baby or dad had to take too many days off. Paying for parking every day yeah, or they're too far away, but they're not far enough away to get any sort of reimbursement for hospital stay or a hotel stay. There's a lot of situations where families just fall through the cracks. I mean, we've heard of families using, yeah. you know, the money and costing upwards of $1,000 just in gas overages to go down to the NICU and back in a month or two. I mean, that's crazy. Nobody's oh. thinking I'm going to spend an extra $1,000 on gas. Especially when they've lost their job or they can't work or whatever it is. There's no income. Right. Yeah. So we're kind of there to fill those um, people that fell through the cracks as well. Um, yeah. and social workers have just reached out to us like, Hey, I have this mom and I just can't, she made too much money before she came to the hospital and I cannot find any programs for her, but she could really use help for one month, you know? So we've been able to help those. And I, I mean, I say to Andy, like, I feel really great about those things because those feel like people like me or our friends, you know, mm -hmm. that they're not just constantly getting all this, you know, state aid and stuff, but they need a lot of help one or two months of the year. Right. And when you're dealing with not only unexpected expenses, but you're in the midst of uh, a lot of stress and probably a lot of pain um, to be able to alleviate that for families must feel really amazing. Yeah, it does. It does. And one other thing you said, are we overwhelmed with the amount of outreach? The answer is no. Right. One of the asks that we had, um, because going into this, we're like, well, what are some of the things we want to get out of it? And one of them is if you know anybody that is struggling, one in eight babies are born premature and a lot of people won't ask for help. That's where I think the gap is, is that there could be somebody that's really struggling. They don't qualify for a lot. They don't know where to get help. That's where we can come in. 
Yeah. And we don't ever tell anybody who we're helping. If they want to tell someone we helped them, that's great. But we have never told, I mean, nobody knows any of the names of any of the people that we have helped except for Andy and I. Oh, that's beautiful. So uh, if people are wondering whether or not there's, you're discreet, you absolutely are. Yeah. yeah. Unless they want to speak at our event. Yeah. Some of them will say like, yeah. Right. But that's yeah. up to them. Yeah. yeah. I, um, I think that can be hard for people, you know, asking for help can be difficult. And, mm -hmm. and I think that as you spoke to, um, it doesn't have to mean that you're on dire straits to ask for help to alleviate stressors for uh, a, a, a time, you know, mm -hmm. um, because all of us can uh, resonate with the fact that when those types of things hit, um, when they're unexpected, it, you feel it, whether you're, um, whether you're typically doing financially okay or not. So, <clears throat> um, you spoke to how much I want you to say one more time what you have donated in the last couple of years, because it's amazing. Oh, sure. Um, so just because we didn't really continue the story, but after we did, we added golf in 2020. We did golf again in 2021. And golf was really tough on us because there's a lot of work with not a lot of payout. And so Jenny had the idea of let's drop golf and let's do a concert. So we partnered with TB1 Fund, who does day brighteners for kids with cancer at Masonic Children's Hospital. And we decided to do a co-hosted concert where it would be 50-50. So between our gal and the concert in, in 2022, we were able to donate um, over $200,000. And then again in 2023, over $200,000. Now, there was a little bit of a dip in 23, but it's because we wanted to make the concert better than ever. So the cost of the concert went up. A little bit and the whole idea was to create an experience where people would want to come back year after year like i was talking about earlier we dropped golf i think everybody does golf tournaments and those are great but nobody's really connected to our our cause because of the golf tournament and so from 20 2023 all the way back to when we started we've donated over 1.3 million dollars and so <laughs> that number continues to grow obviously as we continue to to make it unique and, and fun events like the concert. And so this year, the concert, we're going to go from one day to two days. We're going to add a, a 80s band on a Friday. And, Stop. Uh, amazing. <laughs> and then we're going to do another, we're looking at doing another major country act to bring in. And we already have a bunch of corporate sponsors involved. They are all about it. And that's, that's another surprising thing. If you want to talk about surprises, it's just, these corporate sponsors coming to us now. Uh, and one of them was at her event last year and she was like, this is going to be my baby next year. And so we just mm -hmm. met with her a few weeks ago and, and she's like, well, this is, I want to be presenting sponsor. And I was like, but we're going to do two days. She's like, fine, I'll double it. And so that kind of oh. thing is just wild to me because I mean, up until what was it? The first con the first concert that we did in 22, I was sitting with the presenting sponsor at a restaurant and I'm like all nervous and it's just he and I, and I'm about to ask him for the biggest amount of money I've asked for any donor. And 
he's like, okay, well, how much are you looking for? And so I tell him and he's like, oh, I thought you were going to ask me for a lot more than that. And it. I just felt like I left money on the table. <laughs> and it's just weird because sure. I, I'm like the, the, the lenses that we're viewing this thing through, we're our, I think we end up limiting ourselves a lot. And I mm-hmm. wish that there was like a coach that I could lean on a little bit that could tell me like, look, you're shooting way too low for some of this stuff. Because here's where I see it, right? When I started my chiropractic business, I had a coach right away. Anybody that starts a business, I tell them, like, look, if you're starting a business for chiropractic, you need a coach. It's always good to have a coach, and it's always good to be a coach. And so that's one of the things I think we're lacking. But we have a lot of different people that are nonprofits that are around us that we lean on. No one, I would say, was really a coach. Maybe Joel. Yeah, we just learn as we go, I guess. Yeah. That's what we're doing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's clearly working. And then, you know, as you said, people just continue to surprise you with the amounts. Like, uh, this sponsor is just like two days. Yep, I'm in. (laughs) I'm just going to double it. Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. I mean, I was telling Andy and then the other nonprofit we work for or work with is just... um, like we want to create like meaningful events that raise awareness and funds, you know, like if people don't know about these things or know that they're programs that we can get going, a lot of hospitals won't pay for this stuff. If they don't have a donor, they won't do it. So, and that's for programs across the board, like for cancer, for all sorts of things, for different like aid things they add in or different programming, even for like adults and everything in the hospitals. If they don't have a donor for those programs, they will not have them at the hospital. They will not fund them. Wow. So with this, uh, this is your third year doing the concert, correct? Mm -hmm. This summer will be. Do you have the dates planned yet? Yep, it's July nineteenth and twentieth. Yep. Yep. I put that on the calendar, Lindsay. Yeah. (laughs) And then our we have a chef's dinner and auction, which is on May fourth, and that's at the TPC. Okay, so this is this different from gala? This is well, that's the gala. Yeah, that's the gala. Okay. Yep. So May 4th is your chef's dinner and auction. And then July 19th and 20th is the two day concert. One of which is eighties themed, which is amazing mm-hmm. and country. So mm-hmm. I love that. Um, and you have, uh, are you in the midst of lining up music and um, those yeah. things or you already have? Yep. We're right now we've been meeting with a couple people and agencies and just talking to a few bands directly to try to, yeah, solidify our two day acts. So openers and main acts and yeah, now we're concert planners. <laughs> yeah. So the, the idea with the idea with it is to have everything solidified before the end of the year so that we can start promoting a little bit, but um, timing of it is different for different bands. So some bands don't really want us to start promoting it too early. Um, and also we don't necessarily want to start promoting it prior to our one event because we don't want to thin the crowd, so to speak. We want people to be able to still attend our gala and there's benefits for people that attend our gala, um, to get certain perks at the concert if they come to the gala. Yeah. They can get discounted concert tickets, discounted counter tickets, meet and greets. Yeah. 
Very oh, there, there is a possibility. I won't tell you who the band is. And this is my favorite band for the 80s band that we're working on. But there is a possibility that you can get a uh, slow dance on stage with your spouse what? or loved one during one of their ballads. Oh, man. Can you imagine? <laughs> no, I can't imagine. So would this is this possibly going to be like a, a an auction item at the gala that would be up for? Uh, I, I think this, I think the at the concert would yeah. be this one. It'll yeah. just be at the concert and then it will happen. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, and to have something that um, caused, you know, began with so much loss and pain and to funnel it into something that not only provides so much comfort for other people, but you get to do things like this as a team and work towards uh, events that are, um, are fun and bring about joy while also directing energy and, and financial incentives to this cause. Like, I can't imagine a better way to take trauma and turn it into um, and something else. So kudos yeah. to you guys. Thank you. Yeah, I was telling Andy like a few years ago, like, you know, after you lose a child, people always say to you, everything happens for a reason. And I said mm. to him, like, this amazing nonprofit and the things that we've done are the reason, you know, that this had happened to us. Because we might not have taken all of that if we hadn't had that loss and made it into this incredible, you know, project of love for, you know, all the babies in our community. Yeah, and it's it's crazy, too, because um, I think we wonder sometimes, like, how much is enough? Um, and the amount of need that's out there, it's just, it's never enough. I know there's lots of nonprofits mm -hmm. that get up and going and then... It's, I'm telling you, it, it's a lot of love and it's a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, um, positive that comes out of it, but I think it's a grind it, and it's, it's no joke. It's a lot yeah. of hard work and you get to hear a lot of great stories, but then you also get to hear a lot of not so great stories. And so it's constantly bringing you back through what we went through, which is okay. That's how I heal and continue to heal. Um, but there's a lot of families that we know that are still very scarred from what went on. And that's part of why we funded the, the mental health program through the research program through the University of Minnesota Masonic Children's Hospital. Yeah, and also like through doing all of this, we've got to meet so many amazing people and we've just got to do so many amazing things that I just feel like sometimes I think at the end of the day, some of the smallest things that we do are really the most impactful. Like we were able to do like Mother's Day and Father's Day gifts for all the moms and dads at all four hospitals. And I mean, those moms and dads, that might be their first Mother's Day or Father's Day and there might not be anything going on for them because they're sitting at the hospital and it was just so awesome to be able to bring them all the gifts and just hear feedback from the nurses and our contacts there of how wonderful it was and how many smiles there were getting just these little gift bags full of just some necessity things and snacks that they could use while they were there. One of, one of the things Jenny uh, typed in on your questionnaire before we got on the line with you 
is what's one of the things that you want people to know or uh, kind of a lasting point. And you had said early on is how alone we felt with Colton Mm -hmm. and that we don't want them to feel alone, that they're seen and that we know that they're moms and dads. And by doing that simple gesture, I think it accomplishes that. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a powerful thing uh, simply to allow other people to feel seen and uh, beyond what you're able to do with the financial, um, you know, financial uh, gifts that you can give people in whatever way they come. But um, just to even just to recognize that they're going through something tough and just that recognition alone. And do you need help? Um, uh, and hey, it's Mother's Day, it's Father's Day, and 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 we want you to know that that's important to us. Uh, so, mm-hmm. yeah, that's incredible in and of itself. Yeah, it was fun to do too because we got to make all the little gift bags and stuff. So it's kind of like fun to do all the big stuff and all the little stuff. So, yeah, yeah, I imagine you guys have. Uh, things going on in your house all the time that you're prepping oh for something. Yeah. We found one clean wall to have our call. <laughs> yeah. It's always a mess. You heard a piano. There's all kinds of gift bags and uh-huh. yeah. Yeah. You don't want to know. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, I absolutely want to um, let everybody know the best ways that they can get involved, that they can help, where they can um, learn more about what it is that you're doing as well. Yeah, so I think the best ways to get involved, I mean, you can check out our website. It's brownboysbenefit.org, and we have all our events listed there. You can attend one of our events. You can attend it in person, or you can participate in our silent auction online um, at home when your pajamas if you want. Um, we also will be participating in Give to the Max Day, and we're really hoping to grab some people that will stay up in the middle of the night and donate because we've heard that that's some really good opportunity for us to fundraise. So we're hoping to make a big impact that day. We're hoping to have really great successful events and just people attend our events and donate if they can. Um, we're putting up a live donate now button on our website within the next couple of weeks that will just be live all the time. So people can donate whenever they want. Um, is there other things? Yeah. And then just the last thing and is- what I, we talked about before getting on the line is the looking for people to help us out with committee. If you're a business owner, even if you're not, if you have a philanthropic heart, if you want to come out and help us, you know, boots on the ground kind of opportunity, where you're going out asking for donations or you're helping us at the concert set up stuff. Anything is on the table. Just reach out to us and you can do that through our website. There's an email on there. Also has my cell phone. Um, You can contact us that way. Very cool. And will you um, give the date of the give to the max day? Because I, this will be released before um, that day. I believe it's November, is it a Tuesday? Yeah. November 14th? Okay. Yes. It's November 14th. That is November 14th, and that is a day this will come out. So today that people are listening then. 
November 14th. Give to the max yep. day. Give to the max day. Yep. It's a big day in Minnesota and there's tons of matching gifts for nonprofits all over the state. It's an amazing day to give to your favorite nonprofit. And we hope you pick us. Brown Boys Benefit. And and to add to that, every, every donation is basically an entry into a basket that they do a drawing every hour and then they give gifts away to that. So not just matching gifts, but above and beyond that. So it's opportunities for your $5 donation to maybe be $10,000. Yeah. Very cool. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like another fundraiser for us because the two major ones are spring and summer. We really don't do anything until then. This is sort of our lull, even though we had a meeting yesterday. <laughs> and I had a meeting basically every Tuesday and Thursday and some Fridays for the last three weeks. So. And it's just a lot of planning and stuff, but it's all fun stuff, meeting with band agents and that sort of thing and and sponsorships and sort of that sort of thing, too. That's awesome. Well, I I am sure that there are so many people listening that feel inspired to get involved. Um, I've attended your events before, but uh, I I'm already inspired to lend a hand in whatever you guys need. So I'm going to connect with you after this and and talk about that. What you guys are doing is just, um, it's super inspiring and it makes people just want to uh, hop in in whatever way possible. So I can't thank you enough for sharing your story. Um, For everybody listening, please consider uh, the Give to the Max Day, attending these events. They're a fantastic time and uh you guys are amazing humans and i'm just very grateful for sharing your story today thank you Lindsay. thank you